Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, I just thank you so much for this time Lord, for this place that we can gather um, freely, Lord, for the time that we have come to open up your word and to sit and to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us each and every one of us, you know what each one of us needs to hear, Lord. And whether it's in the words I say or whether it's in the words that I don't say this morning, I know that your message will come through to everyone just how they need to hear it this morning. So I trust you in that, Lord, and I just faithfully walk through this word now with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, guys, last Sunday we saw that all of the people and their kids and their chickens and their goats and their stuff and their wagons and the carts cross over the Jordan River in a most miraculous way. We saw that the priest bearing the, the Ark of the Covenant stood in place in full view of all of the people until the Lord's plan was finished. At that time, Joshua called them up out of the riverbed of the, and the raging waters of the Jordan River flow back into place miraculously. Then Joshua sets up a memorial of 12 stones, in a, and they call the camp where they are Gilgal, which means circle of stones or memorial. And the purpose of this memorial was to remind them what God had done for them in their past so that they could live forward in faith. But I want to just keep drawing you back to the idea that God gives us memorials about what he's done in our past so that we don't live in the past, so that we live facing forward in faith, faithing, faithing, faithing forward, (laughs) faithing forward. There you go. We're going to live faithing forward. That's... Um, uh, I'm sure that some of us have memorials, um, uh, a cross, for example, uh, a cross is something that maybe you have hanging in your house or wear around your neck, and you do that to help you remember what Christ did for you on the cross when he went to the cross and he took on all the sin of the world, including yours, all of it, and died for the forgiveness of all of it. And we look at the cross and we remember that, and that allows us to live faith forward as we walk. We could say, because he did that, I know I'm forgiven, and I know that I am heaven-bound, and so I will live going in that direction with the hopeful anticipation of one day going to heaven, because either he's going to call me home, or he's going to come back and get all of us at the same time. And that is an amazing memorial. Um, uh, Maybe you have a, a picture of Jesus hanging in your house for the same reason. Maybe your memorial is less obvious. I was told by a friend a week or so ago that they thought that they were going to get a bowl of rocks, a bowl of stones, as, as, uh, what's his name? Joshua. (laughs) As Joshua set up a memorial of stones, she said, I'm going to get a bowl of stones and I'm going to put it in my living room. And I said, that's interesting. I mean, that's a little less obvious. Why would you do that? And she said, so that when someone comes to my house, they'll say, 
why do you have a bowl of stones in your living room? And she said, then I could tell them, I have these stones here because it reminds me of what God has done for me in my life. And so it, it kind of sparks an interesting conversation. I'm going to check with her later to see if she really did it. <laughs> Maybe your memorial is um, less intentional. Maybe your memorial is a scar that runs from here to here because you recently had open heart surgery. And it is a reminder that God was saying, your time is not today. I'm still using you for my glory there on earth. And it's a reminder every time you get up and look at yourself in the mirror, you see this scar that runs like this and you think, this is what God did. God saved me again. Well, in chapter 5, we're also reminded that just hearing the wonders of God is enough to melt someone's heart. In fact, it is hearing the word of God that produces faith in him. We also saw God require obedience to him through circumcision of all the men of the people because their parents had, diso had been disobedient to this command of God as well. But this time they are obedient, even though they know it will make them vulnerable to their enemies. But God shows them through his divine protection and provision that their vulnerability is unto him. And gang, that's where we want to be, vulnerable, vulnerable before the Lord with a circumcised heart, ready to let God fight our battles and trusting in his provision, even in the close proximity of our enemies as they were. David touches on this in Psalm 23. You probably know this, but he says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He says, you are vulnerable but you're vulnerable before me, and I will protect you. I will provide for you. He sets a table for us, even in the presence of our enemy. He does that because he is there to protect us. But finally, we see Joshua approached by Jesus himself in the form of a man with a drawn sword, and he says to Joshua, I have now come. Joshua says, are you with us or are you with the enemy? And his response is, no. <laughs> In fact, what he's implying to him is, no, I'm not with you. You're with me. I have now come. We know that because he's going to go on and give Joshua a battle plan that we're going to look at today that actually doesn't have very much to do with them at all. He says, I'm going to do all of it. I just kind of want you along with me. Then he says, take off your sandals because the place that you are standing is holy ground. You know, it's actually amazing that in this um, really wicked, defiled land of Canaan that there's any holy ground at all. Until you realize that the ground is holy, not because it's holy, but because he's holy and he is present there. Did you know, this is according to the Royal Family's website. They have their own website. Did you know that according to the Royal Family's website, 
that wherever the king or queen is in residence, the royal standard, that is their own personal flag, is flown so that all can see that the sovereign is present. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says that our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. The sovereign is present within us. So my question is, are you flying the royal standard so that all can see? Well, what would that look like anyway? I mean, is it like a little hat, a little flag on top? It says, Jesus is present. It's flying up here. This is the flag. <laughs> is, it a, is it a T-shirt with a catchy Christian saying or a verse on it? They will know we are Christians by our T-shirts. <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a fish decal on the back of your car, right? But you know when I, when I say that, people are like, I, I don't have a fish decal on the back of my car because the, the way I drive wouldn't be a great witness. And I'm like, that, that's like opposite. Put it on the back of your car so it will change the way you drive, knowing that people will say, that's how a Christian drives? Yes! I'm kind. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. It's okay that the light is green. It's all right. It's a, we're gonna, we'll just stay here. Goodness. Jesus said this, though. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have what? Love for one another. All right, but what does that look like? Well, I'm going to just turn over to 1 Corinthians 13 for a minute. 1 Corinthians 13, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard this, but it is like the love chapter that Paul writes. I'm just going to read through, so bear with me. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Do you know what that means? It means you're just making a lot of noise. If you speak without love, you're just a noisemaker. It says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. In another version, it says, though I, what, without love I am nothing, I am bankrupt. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. How will people know you are flying the flag of the sovereign who is present in your life if you love one another? What does it mean to love one another? If you forget, go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8, and read that over and over again, and understand what that means. Understand how to love one another. All right, on to chapter 6. Finally, Jericho. Now Jericho, it says now Jericho because, because God knew it would take me forever to get here. Now Jericho. 
was securely shut up because the children of Israel, um, because of the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. It's interesting to me. They know something greater than themselves is behind all of this. They know because Rahab will tell, told the spies, we have witnessed and heard about what your God has done for you. We know that there is a greater force out there that's a supernatural force that's greater than us. And their response to it is, let's just shut it out. Maybe that'll work. We'll just shut it out. Maybe we can just close up the gates. But as we're going to see, God is about to tear down their walls. Oops, sorry, did I spoil, did I spoil it for anybody? <laughs> so he says, and the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hands, its king and the mighty men of valor. Do you see what God says? See, I have given. They haven't done it yet. But to God, it is a done deal. The city is securely locked up. There's no way in. No one's coming out. As they're going to see, as they go around it day after day, it's impossible to get over the wall. And yet God says, I have given. See, look, Joshua, see, I've given it to you. All Joshua had to do was trust him for the victory. That's all they had to do was to trust him, to what? Believe God and to trust him. And that's what they do again. That's what we're going to see. In verse 3, now it is, he's going to give them the plan. So God gives them a battle plan that doesn't really involve a battle. At least not on their part. But that was the point. Let's see. You shall go around the city, all your men of war, and you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and all you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. And then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people will go up, every man straight before him. That's the plan. Not much of a battle happening. God says, I'm going to do this in a way that doesn't involve you much other than being faithful to what it is I call you to do, which is going to be march around the city once a day for six days until the seventh day, when you'll go around seven times, and then there's going to be a trumpet sound, and you'll shout, and the walls will come down. That's the plan. Now, you understand, this was the biggest obstacle that they would face going into the land of Canaan. It was the most fortified city, the biggest obstacle, they were going to go in and God says, this biggest obstacle that you're facing, I am going to overcome it for you. You need only to trust in my plan. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and he said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. You know what's interesting? There's some debate um, about whether it was like all the people um, or it was just the, the armed men who went first with the priests carrying the ark and then the, the priests with the horns and then some other soldiers behind them and that was the whole procession. Whether it was the whole people or just this group, there is a little bit debate. I happen to think that it was all the people because he keeps mentioning all the people. 
Um, and it's interesting to me, like, I know based on the plan and based on who God is, that he did not need them to be a part of this plan. It wasn't like God needed them to blow the trumpets and shout for him to bring the walls down. He didn't need them to be a part of what he was about to accomplish, but he wanted them to be a part of what he was about to accomplish. And I love that. Because still today, God doesn't need us to accomplish what it is that he wants to do, but he wants to include us in what he wants to do. Could God accomplish his entire plan without us, gang? He, absolutely, he could. But the fact that we're all still here after receiving the forgiveness of our sins tells me that God says, but I want you to be a part of what I've got going on down there. I want you to be a part of bringing people to the saving knowledge of my son, Jesus. This says, I don't need you, but I want you to be involved in this. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. Now, this is interesting. God gives Noah, uh, Noah an ark, and that's another story. <laughs> and God gave Joshua a plan for how to take the city of Jericho. He gave them a plan. Now, it was not a normal battle plan. He knew that Joshua was going to have to go back to his um, commanders of the army and say, okay, I've got the plan. God gave me the plan. You're going you're gonna to march around and not use any weapons and not say anything um, and just bring some ram's horns trumpets and be blowing those as you go. Maybe that was just to drive the Jericho people, Jerichans, Jerichoans, the people of Jericho crazy because they just never stopped blowing those trumpets the whole time. But he goes to them and he says, here's the crazy plan and it doesn't really involve any battle at all and um, it's just going to be a matter of us shouting and the walls will come down and we're going to go in and take the city. And they all accepted it. There's no mention here that they were like, all right, we're going to take this back to our commander's committee and we're going to discuss it. We're going to see if it's really viable and then if it's okay, we'll come back to you and if not, we'll come back with another plan. No, they just do it. Do you know why? Because if you go back to chapter 4, verse 14, just look over there for a minute, right? Chapter 4, verse 14, look what it says. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all of Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. See, God made the, it so, after they crossed over the Jordan River, that they were like, oh, Joshua is the man. God speaks to him, and what, what he says to Joshua, and he tells us, that's what happens we're going to trust him. We're going to follow him. So when Joshua comes with this crazy plan that doesn't involve any battle, in fact, is just we're going to use harmonics to take down the wall. They're like, sounds good. Let's go. You say so, let's go. We're going into battle. We're going into you know, battle. So they follow him. And it says, then the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark with the priests continuing blowing the trumpets. We've got seven men with shofars. Shofars is a big, like, ram's horn, right? Um, and it's interesting that he said, use ram's horns, because 
um, whenever they blew ram's horns, it wasn't like a battle cry. It was more like, hey, I need your attention because something um, holy is about to happen. Remember, we, we talked about when, when Jesus said to Peter, when you hear the cock crow, um, and that actually wasn't a rooster, but was actually them blowing the, the shofar early in the morning, calling them to worship at the temple. It was like a way of getting or gaining their attention. So he says, you're going to use ram's horns in this case. And it says in verse 10, now Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, and then you will shout. Okay, so imagine this. You just go there with me, okay? You've got um, the, the, the armed guards in the front. You've got the, the priests blowing the trumpets continuously. You've got the guys with the ark. You've got the guard behind them. And then what I believe also is all of the people, and the, every day they were to get up and they were to walk around the city while the trumpets are blowing, not saying a word. Now, on the first day, I imagine the people of Jericho are up on the wall, and they're like, oh, man, here it comes. They're coming. And they just watch them. They're like, okay, they're going around. All right, they're going around. The... They're not saying anything. When are they going to stop blowing those trumpets? <laughs> and they go around once, and then they go back to the camp. And they don't do anything. And they're like, what the, what Someone go down and look and see if, did they do anything down there? And they're, and they're a little bit like, what's going on? Now, what you also have to know is that every time they did this, they went back to the camp, right? Well, what was at the camp in Gilgal? The memorial to remind them of what God had done miraculously in their past, to remind them that even though you're looking at this uh, uh, unsurmountable wall, Remember what God has already done for you and have faith that he is going to do the thing that he said he's going to do. So every day, they come up for six days. Every day, all they do is they walk up. They're blowing the trumpets. They walk around. Day two, the, the, the people of Jericho are watching them walk around the wall thinking, this is, it. They're gonna, this is the day they're going to attack us. And again, they just go back. Day three, they come up and they just walk around the wall. No one's saying anything. They're just walking around the wall. Guys are blowing the trumpets. They're just walking around the wall. I'm thinking by like day four, they start to mock them a little bit from Jericho. They're like, you know, making jokes and be like, walking around the wall. Hey, while you're down there, trim the grass. You know, they start to throw accusations at them because all they're seeing is they're just walking up and walking around the wall. And they start to, I, I bet they're probably hurling insults at them they're yelling at them, they're making fun of them, and yet Joshua said, you are not to say a word. Oh, man. How hard would that have been? You just wait. You're laughing now, but you don't know. Hey, you, you fools. I know you are, but what am I? That would be so hard for me to just be like, <laughs> not to say a word. It's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard when someone is speaking, uh, mocking you, throwing insults out against you, lying about you, and you so badly, I want to be like, no, I want, God, God, I just have to, can I just, can I just say this one thing? And God is like, don't say a word, because I've got this. In, in Proverbs 26, 4, it says, do not answer a fool his folly, lest you also be like him. <laughs> Do not answer a fool is folly, or else you will be like him. It's so hard 
But the Lord says, the battles are mine. The battles are mine. You know what I heard somebody say this week? That faith means never being embarrassed by the impracticality of God's promises. God promised them, this is how we're going to destroy the city, and it's going to seem foolish to the people of Jericho, but you don't be embarrassed to do it. Don't answer them back. When they mock you, don't answer them back. I talked about this, I think, last week, because my tendency is that I'm going to answer back in my flesh, and it's not going to be godly, and it's not going to be God-honoring, and it's not going to be what we would say it would be Christian. Even if I use a Bible verse, which I can be very good, I can really use the Bible to cut you down. But I won't because God says, no, you're doing this. God wants this. Don't say a word, he says. So, verse 11 so he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came back to camp and lodged in the camp. And again, every time they come back, they see the memorial. Every time they come back, they are reminded of the miraculous things that God has already done for them so that they can continue to live faithing forward. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and then the seven priests, bearing the trumpets, uh, trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the covenant, went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did this six days. Six days. Why so many times? Why six times? Why so many times did God tell them, you're going to walk around? Because on the next day, they're going to do it and then seven times, which means they're going to encircle Jericho 13 times, never speaking a word the entire time as they go around. Why so many times? I mean, was it two or three times enough, God? Come on, two or three times. You know, it would have taken them about, based on the size of the city, about 40 minutes to an hour to walk all the way around the city of Jericho, right? So every day they get up, and that's their, like their morning walk. We're going for our morning walk, and we're walking around. It's going to take us an hour or so to get around. And then on the, on the seventh day, they have to do it seven times. So now it's like an entire day's commitment of walking around the city of Jericho, not saying a word every time. Why so many times? I think it's this. I think God wanted them to realize with each pass just and become so aware that they could not do anything in their own power to take down this stronghold. We're talking about a stone retaining wall that was very high, 20 feet. And above that was another 26 feet of mud brick wall. And then space, and then another retaining wall, and then another brick wall on top of that. Every time they pass by, they are reminded, you cannot take this city in your own power. This obstacle, this stronghold is going to be taken through God. They're reminded of that every single day for 13 days. There's no way you're going to be able to take this stronghold. How many of you have strongholds 
in your life right now? How many of you have something in your life that needs to come tumbling down and you're trying to take it down with your own grappling hooks and poles and swords? And God says, you know what? I'll take it down. You want me to take it down? See, some of us have strongholds that we've put there. We built it up. Maybe it was for a good reason. Maybe it was to protect ourselves against something. But now it's not a good thing. Now it's a stronghold. Now it's got control of your life. Now you're trapped inside of it. And maybe you're like, I really want to take that down. I just can't do it. I don't have the tools. And God says, but I have the tools. Let me take it down for you. I might do it in a way that seems really crazy and strange. But do you want me to take it down? Let me take it down for you. It says in verse 15, But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on that day, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. That was what was different on this day. He said, on the seventh day, on the seventh trip, when you hear the trumpets, you're going to shout because the Lord has given you the city. Hadn't yet, but he was saying, you know what, let's, let's just try this, okay? I'm going I'm to make like a trumpety sound, and when I do that and point to you all, shout. I just want you to shout like, like they would have shouted, all right? And we're just going to trust that God's not going to take our walls down. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right, here's my question. What did you say? That, I mean, what was the sound that you thought was the appropriate thing to say? To sh- when I said shout, like they said shout, I have always asked myself this question. What did they say? And all y'all just went, <laughs> He just made a sound. Because why? Did you know what to say? No, you don't know what to say. I don't know what to say when it says, when he said, shout, and they just went, ah! You know, we don't always know what to say. We don't always know what to say to praise God. But sometimes we just are like, yeah! Sometimes we don't know what to say when we pray either. Have you ever experienced that? You ever gotten to a place where you're like, man, Lord, I... I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray. I don't know the words to praise you. I don't know the words to come to you. I don't know the words to express the need that I'm feeling right now that I know that you want to know and I can't say it. I don't know what it is to say these things. Uh, David wrote in one of his psalms, um, that very thing. I don't know. He says, I don't, uh, my heart is so troubled, I don't know what to say. But I take comfort in the verse in uh, Romans 8.26, I believe, where he says, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray 
for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession with us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And I always read that verse and say, the Holy Spirit takes the things that are the groanings of my heart, the prayers that I don't know how to put into words because I just don't know the words, and he takes those up to God, and God understands those utterings, those groanings. I just take such comfort in the fact that God knows that. And so I don't want you to be discouraged if you ever come to a place where you're like, I want to praise the Lord, but I don't. Nah! Or, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray for myself. Lord, I don't know what to pray for that person. I know they're hurting. I know there's some issue, and I don't know what it is, and I don't know the words to say. Lord, please. I generally say, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it says in verse 17. And, and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that were sent. And you, here's a warning now, he says, and you by all means abstain from the accursed things lest you become accursed when you take the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and a trouble. You would think that they would fairly be, you know, be able to keep that command after all the accursed curse talk. But what God says to them, what Joshua says that God had said to Joshua, um, don't take anything. The first one is accursed things. It's the word that means things that are set apart or devoted. So he says, there are things in this city that I've already set apart for myself, for, for, for my purposes. In this first obstacle, this stronghold that I'm going to knock down, the spoils, God says, are mine. I don't want you to take these accursed things, these devoted things, lest you become accursed. It's the same word, but it has a different meaning and application to them where it means um, a thing to be destroyed, right? And so you might be confused, like how can, how can a word in the Bible have two separate meanings? That's crazy. We have a thousand of them. Take the word drop, for example. Oh man, I hope I don't drop this delicious homemade cheesecake. Or, same word, this coffee is good to the last drop. Same word, completely different meanings. It's okay. The Bible says these things that are in the city, they're devoted to the Lord. Don't you take them lest you become a thing that is set for destruction. He goes on, he says, but all the silver and gold vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. God said those things, those things of value, the gold, the silver, the bronze, those are supposed to be um, uh, separated or consecrated for the Lord's treasury because he has a plan for them for later on. So it says in verse 20, the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpet and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. And then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed 
all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Man, that seems really harsh. Doesn't it? Does it? You might say, that doesn't seem like a very loving God. I mean, what did the people of Jericho or even the people of Canaan ever do for that matter? This is the kind of thinking that causes people to just reject God. How could a loving God let an entire city of innocent people be destroyed? But guys, that thinking is much too narrow. The person who thinks this assumes that they are read, what they're reading encompasses all of the information. I mean, like, we never do that, though, right? We never get a little bit of information and then assume that's everything and then form a judgment. We don't do that. That's just in the Bible, clearly. The fact is, let me, let me read to you something from Genesis 15. This is like hundreds of years before this, hundreds of years. Then he said to Abram, this is God speaking to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. That's the Israelites in Egypt, okay? And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterwards... They shall come out with a great procession. That's Exodus. Okay, follow me? Now, uh, and then he goes on to the next verse, 16. It says, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's a very important verse. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was measuring time in based on morality. What this lets us know was just because we only see God interacting with the Israelites doesn't mean that he wasn't also interacting with people of other nations like the people of the land of Canaan. They all had the opportunity to accept or reject God. He said to Abram 500 years before, their iniquity has not come to its completion yet. So I'm not going to send you in yet, but there is going to come a time where I will judge their uh, rejection. And that time is here in Jericho. Well, I mean, what could they possibly have been guilty of? I mean, what could be so bad that they were so guilty that God was like, I've given them time to repent, they haven't. Now it's time for you to come in and wipe them all out. Well, let me tell you what it was that they were doing. I'm just going to read. This is now from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any who makes his or her son or his daughter pass through the fire, or who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord." Um, and then he says, For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. 
He says, these things that you're not to do are the things that they are guilty of doing. They literally were sacrificing their children and burning them alive on altars of fire. That's just one of the things. And so God says, um, all right, I am going to use you now as an instrument of my judgment on a people who had hundreds of years to come to a place of the acceptance of my word, and they rejected me, and now their time has come. Oh, here's the thing. God never, let, God gave them a chance all the way up until this moment. How do I know that? How do I know that they still could have repented? Who do we know showed us that? Rahab. Rahab had heard of the power of God. She had heard of the divine sovereignty of, the, of, of Yahweh. And when she had the chance, she took it. She confessed, which we looked at, that she knew that he was God above all gods. There is no God or collection of gods in the entire world that is greater than your God, she said. And she said, it is through your God that I know that I can be saved. And was she saved? She was, despite the fact that she was a Canaanite, despite the fact that she was a prostitute, despite the fact that she was a big, fat liar, which we looked at, God saved her from destruction. Any of them had the option. In fact, it wasn't just Rahab. Any of the ones that then heard her message and was willing to come into her house were also saved, which we're going to look at. He says, but Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as, she, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had so that they brought out all her relatives. I'll just put a pin in that. And left them outside of the camp of Israel. You know, <laughs> while the people are watching from Jericho, the, the, the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan River, thinking they've got weeks or months maybe until they come across. And then all of a sudden, the, the river starts to rise up in a huge heap of water supernaturally. Um, I imagine those who had originally rejected Rahab's message of salvation are now finding it more compelling. Now that their situation has become more dire, they know who to go to for help, the crazy religious one. Have you ever tried talking to someone about your faith, a family member or a friend, and they let you know that they are not interested, but then they find themselves in some kind of a crisis and they know right who to come to the crazy religious one. I am okay with that because I know that it is not about me. It's about God and his desire to see every person get saved. Just as Rahab knew the way of salvation, God has given us the words of eternal life, not just to have, but to Share. Rahab obviously went to her family. 
I don't know if her family said okay right away or rejected her at first, but what I do know is at least somewhere along the line, they heard what she had to say and believed that she had the words of salvation, and they came to her and were in her house, not just her mother and her father and her brother and her sister, but it says all her relatives were also with her. In fact, the word relatives in Hebrew can be all of her kind. Doesn't mean just her family, but anyone who was the same as she was, meaning anyone who also heard the words and believed that if you come into my house, you will be saved. Then it says, but they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent into Jericho. From this to this day, it's a very interesting little like indicator that is in this because what it does is it lets us know that Joshua, the book of Joshua, was written fairly soon within the time that it all happened. Because if it was you know a hundred years after, she's not living there a hundred years. She's not alive at that point. At this point, they weren't living nine hundred years. So we know that the book of Joshua can, can be uh, known to have been written at least within the lifetime of a person because she's still living with them in Israel to this day. And then it says, Joshua charged them at that time saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Joshua does something interesting here. He doesn't curse the city of Jericho, okay, if that's what you're thinking, because the city of Jericho had been there long before this, and in some version after it, and, and not sometimes in the same location, sometimes a little, bit, a little bit in a different location. In fact, we read about that in the New Testament, how in the Gospels it says that they were coming out of the city of Jericho, and one says they were coming into the city of Jericho, but the fact is that the city of Jericho was still there. So Joshua didn't curse the city of Jericho. Uh, Jericho, what he said was, cursed to be the one who sets its foundation and its gates. And really what he was saying is, um, not blessed, cursed is the one who tries to re-fortify or rebuild the stronghold. Cursed be the one who tries to rebuild the stronghold. Right? In fact, what we know is 500 years later, in the reign of King Ahab, there was this guy named Hal, it's probably this, <laughs> who laid the foundation of the city of Joshua... Jericho, with the intent of refortifying the city. And as he laid the foundation, his son was killed. Well, he kept on going and he built the city. And as he hung the gates, which means as he finished it off, his youngest son died. Just as Joshua had said, just as God had said, don't do this or this is what will happen. And that's exactly what happened. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. Joshua had just come in and taken the city of Jericho in a supernatural way that, that can't, can't really be explained in any other way. Did you know 
that although the Bible is the, it's the only historical document that actually speaks of the city of Jericho, almost no one refutes um, that it existed, and it existed in the place that the Bible says that it was. In fact, there's been a few excavations there. The city of Jericho is what's called a tell. It's like a, a man-made hill. The reason it's a hill is because every time the city was leveled, they would rebuild it uh, on the same spot. So it's kind of like, as it was explained to me, like a layer cake. You know, one layer on top of another layer on top of another layer. And so when they go and they excavate sites like the city of Jericho, they can kind of do a, a cross-section slice and see the different layers of you know, dirt and rubble and know, well, this was this time period, this was this time period, this was this time period. So the city of Jericho has been excavated pretty much like three major times, one in the like 1903 to 1907, one in the 1930s, and then once in the 1950s by a woman named Catherine Kenyon. Now, Catherine Kenyon was not a believer, but what she did was incredible research and documentation on her excavation of the city of Jericho, and here are some of the things that she found. She found a stone retaining wall just as the Bible says, just at the height that the Bible talks about, the, a stone retaining wall around. And then what she found was at the base of the stone retaining wall was a pile of mud bricks that had come falling down. Now, they didn't just fall down in the sense that they fell in. It's, she shows in a, in a cross-section drawing that she did and that she documented was that the bricks fell down in a way that they, they filled in the gap between the ground and the retaining wall, creating a mud brick ramp that would go up over the retaining wall on both walls. And so that left a ramp for um, the people of the army of Israel to just go straight up, just as the Bible said they were able to go up. Otherwise, how would they get up? Even with the mud brick wall falling down, the stone retaining wall is still there. But she shows in her documentation that the, the mud brick wall, which is there, had fallen down and filled in and created a ramp for the entire army to get up into the city. And that's pretty cool. This is what she also found. The layer that she identified as being around this time in the ground is completely burned. So you've got like dirt, dirt, scorched dirt, 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 and so on. So she, you could see in the cross-section that the ground was charred because they burned the city. There was in the entire wall that they found had fallen down except one section on the northern wall had not come, tumbled, come tumbling down. And I know who lived there, and so do you. A harlot named Rahab most likely lived in that one section of the wall that it was excavated to still be standing, not tumbled down like the rest of the wall. Also, once they started to dig up and, and uncover the city of Jericho, what they found was these large storage pots, ceramic storage pots that were all basically intact. And what they found is that they were all full of grain or semi-full, which would indicate the timing was at the time or just around the time of harvest, which we know was the case because the Bible said it was the time of harvest. Now, what's interesting is they didn't take the grain, which would have been very valuable at this time. Why didn't they take the grain? Because God said, leave it all. 
Only take the gold, silver, and bronze, and that goes into the temple treasury. Leave everything else, and also all of those pots and all that grain, scorched. It's, that's how they undug it, scorched up grain, meaning that it was there when they burned down the city. Isn't that amazing? Okay, here's the thing. When it came time to date the findings... The way they do this there is they find pottery and then they date the pottery based on um, other dig sites that have been confirmed and dated and they compare. So they said, here's a pot from uh, a dig that we know is to be about 1400 BC, which is the time that the Bible, um, and if you want to know it, there's a mathematical equation that talks about you know when Solomon was king, when David was king, going all the way back to some verses that talk about that we can pinpoint that Jericho was about 1404, about. <laughs> they would compare other dig sites from the 1400s, the pottery that they find there, and they would compare it to the pottery that's found at Jericho, right? So Catherine Kenyon, who's not a believer, did I mention that? Not a believer. All of this evidence that lines up perfectly with what the Bible is talking about and how the Bible lays it all out dates it at 1500 and says there's no way this could have been the biblical um, Jericho because everybody would have been gone for 100 years. There wouldn't have been anybody here. So she says it was 100 years earlier than what the Bible talks about. Now, there was another doctor, another archaeologist, Dr. Payton, who went in 1997, and he looked at all the findings. Now, the archaeologists who were there before her dated it at 1400. This guy, Dr. Payton, goes in, and he also dates it at 1400 based on the pottery that he found in other sites. He says the reason Catherine Kenyon dated it at 1500 was what she didn't find. She was looking for a certain type of pottery that was in circulation, that was made in Cyprus, that many other cities wanted and would like buy that kind of pottery. And she didn't find any of that pottery in this city. So despite everything else, she said, because I didn't find that pottery in this city, then this couldn't be from the 1400s. Despite all the other evidence that was there indicating everything else lines up with what the Bible says. And so she just was unwilling to say this is in alignment with what the Bible says. Someday, I may write a book. And I will call that book, It Takes a Lot of Faith to Be an Atheist. Because over and over again, we see enormous amounts of evidence being presented and people saying, no, 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 it's not that. She contends that it was an earthquake that caused the wall to fall down, which caused a fire that burned up the city. But everything lines up with exactly what the Bible says, that God caused the walls to fall, that allowed the army to go up and take this city, acting as the uh, instrument of judgment that God used against the people and their iniquity for the last several hundred years. Um, God did this, guys. God did this. God isn't done doing miraculous things. Amen. God is not done. What he says is, if you want to see strongholds come down, you trust me. You trust me to do it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so very much for your word this morning and for, your, for what you show us in it, Lord. Thank you for giving us the, these um, historical accounts, Lord, that, that act as memorials for us so that we can see the, the supernatural things, the glorious things that you've done in the past and know that you will continue to do things miraculously and according to your plan in our future, and we hold on to that, and we live forward, Lord.
Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has a stronghold in their life that they don't know what to do about, I pray, Lord, that they would just, even this morning, they would come forward and, and come to those uh, folks who are here at, at the front to pray and say, I have a stronghold of this. I have a stronghold of this. Can you pray with me and ha- ask the Lord to overcome the stronghold in my life? Take it away, Lord, that I might be free from that. Lord, I I pray also if there be anyone here who doesn't know your son Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would be stirring their hearts right now, even even as I talk about the the wonders and the power of God um, and the presence in our life and how he is present in my very life, Lord, um, I pray that they would desire to have that as well, that the Spirit would be stirring them now, Lord, and they would would call out and say, Lord, I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life now. Uh, Forgive me, Lord. Free me. Uh, from the slavery of sin, um, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your name.